Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Annette Wantling of Wardle, Wardle, Lanshire in England. It's Lancashire. Lancashire. Yeah. No, it's not. It is. It's Lancashire. <clears throat> Sorry, Annette. This week's Lawn Order Marathon winner is Annette Wantling of Wardle, Lancashire in England. Annette will get a marathon decal showing she watched 26.2 hours of her favorite crime show. To be next week's winner, sign up at lawnorderpodcast.com. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoy and Hank Kratulis, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it, Lion Order, Lion Order, Lion Order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedurals, baby. Lion Order, Lion Order, Lion Order, Lion Order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about Network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. And today we're looking at The Mothership Law & Order Season 5, Episode 20, Bad Faith. What, nobody reported him? Oh, we were just kids. I mean, it was a big deal. Our parents loved him. What are kids going to do against a parish priest? What are we saying here? Marino heard Krolinski's back in town. He knows he likes kids. Then what? Fill in the blanks, Mike. Joining me to do just that is true crime author and host of Crime Writers On and Netflix's Signal Award winning. No, actually, you lost the Signal Award. Oh, oh sorry. Uh, you can't make this up podcast. It's Rebecca Lavoy. Hello, Rebecca. Does it count that I won a Signal Award for something I made at work, my day job? It does not. Rounding uh. out our panel is our special guest from the Procedural Veneration podcast. It's Hank Kratulis. Hi, Hank. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. There was a, a brief moment when you were introducing Rebecca where I was terrified for a second. I was like, oh, please tell me Kevin knows who I am and doesn't think I'm an author. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there another Hank Retools? Because there's another Kevin Flynn and we both wrote for the same publisher and I am not getting his checks. <laughs> That's very disappointing. As far as I know, I am, I am unique, luckily. Yeah. Well, you say in your podcast that you discuss uh, crime procedurals that you've watched way too many times and your first two episodes were about Law & Order and SVU. So what makes a good procedural and... Are either of these shows good? That is such a great question. Um, I don't even know if we're the experts on what a good procedural is, especially well, given yeah, neither are we, but you know. <laughs> Fair enough. On our podcast, we we like to watch the the best, the worst, and the median episode, which we mm -hmm. uh, joke gives us a, a great insight into the series, which it never does, because the best is invariably some kind of annoying story beat that is meaningless if you haven't seen the rest of the show, and the yeah. worst is just either controversial or extremely boring procedurals honestly law and order and svu are pretty far up there at, at least in terms of writing mm, uh, really yeah. <laughs> which i mean wow yeah. i didn't even <laughs> i didn't i didn't really think they were even that notable when we started with them but then we came coming back to watch this after watching now uh nine other shows that are not in the law and order cinematic universe I was like, oh, no, yep, that's pretty well written. <laughs> yeah. What was the worst SVU episode? I, I have to. What did you guys do for that one? Because I have thoughts. It was the Gamergate episode featuring oh, Logan Paul. Oh, yeah, yes. that's a very oh, good choice. Oh, hell no. Very good choice. Yeah, yeah. Oh, hell no. That's a sneaker yeah. line, right? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. The best Law & Order one that you did was called Aftershock. That yes. is the uh, Claire, McKay, Claire Kincaid gets killed at the end. Oh, spoiler brutal. alert. Spoiler. Yes, yeah, spoiler Fucking alert. hell, that was like 25 years ago. That's if you the haven't, execution episode, right? The execution episode. Yes, yeah. I don't think that's the best yeah. one, but people like it. Hank, of all the franchises, which two cops are your favorite detective team? Favorite Law & Order detective team. Um, It's 
almost certainly one that we haven't really got to yet, which is essentially a crime procedural, but way more comedy, which is psych, in my opinion. Uh, you've got uh-huh. Gus and Sean. I'll point out that you failed to grasp the assignment. <laughs> and the question was, your favorite Law & Order detective team. Law & Order detective team. You see, synonymous with Law & Order in my head is just a general crime procedural. So I was There like, you go. Oh, yeah. I can't really argue that. Yeah. I love yeah. this. Um, I have a big uh, sweet spot for Jerry Orbach as Lenny for some reason. I really mm-hmm. like uh, I really liked his character in Aftershock. And I was sad to hear that he passed. I, I also liked Claire because Aftershock is also a, a heavy Claire episode where you get to have some background. Yeah. So I guess I guess the commonality here for Hank is he likes the ones who die. Yeah. Wait, what a downer. Hank. You're a sick motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now let's talk about the first half of this episode, Law & Order Season 5, Episode 20, Bad Faith. Now, just to know, we're going to be talking about fictional detectives investigating fictional sex crimes against fictional victims. But if you still find that especially heinous, you may want to check out another one of our episodes. Fictional. Yes. (laughs) It only happened on paper. Patrolman alerted to a man shot in the head in Riverside Park discovered the victim is Detective Billy Marino. His service weapon is missing. Logan tells Van Buren and Briscoe that he grew up with Marino, whose most recent assignment was sex crimes. We checked his notebooks. Whatever he was up to, he didn't tell anybody about it. Secret hobby he wasn't proud of? Not according to his partner. Not according to anybody, Lenny. I knew the guy since kindergarten. He made the tough calls. He was solid. Mike. What? You want to know about his hobbies? Work and family. Family and work, period. Logan is summoned to see his old boss, Captain Don Cragen, who's now assigned to anti-corruption. Could Marino's death be connected to his most previous assignment at the highly compromised 15th Precinct? Mike insists that Billy was clean, and his widow says something was bugging him after a phone call with Father Joe Krolinski, their childhood parish priest. You know, the one with the reputation. <laughs> Krolinski tells Briscoe and Logan that he left the priesthood 15 years ago, got a good job in insurance, and has a wife and kids. Was Marino going to shake him down over something from their past? The detectives talk to all of Mike's old friends from the neighborhood, several who say Father Joe molested them. One says Marino hinted at shaking old Father Joe down. When they finally recover the bullet, they find it matched Marino's gun. And the patrolmen admit they took the gun to make his suicide look like he was killed in the line of duty. Kincaid says that Father Joe's crimes would fall beyond the statute of limitations and his only arrest back in the day was for a misdemeanor groping. But when Briscoe and Logan talked to that victim, he says he withheld that the assault was way more explicit. McCoy reasons that because the police didn't know at the time it was a felony level assault, they can charge him. All right, let's be clear and clear the air here. Uh, it's all about Logan. Mm. Uh, you can't spell Chris Noth without no, but apparently you can be Chris Noth without no. What do you mean, Kevin? It's two years now since we've done a Logan episode um, because of these allegations against, against Chris Noth. Sexual assault allegations. He says those incidents were consensual. Four women say they weren't. Oh. There's no reason not to believe the women. No. This is him. Chris Noth in the wallet. He was dropped from the equalizer by his agency and by, and just like that, he was dropped by Peloton. A $12 million acquisition deal for his tequila brand fell through. And uh, the only work he can get now is in a public service campaign from a menswear brand to raise, a, raise awareness for men's mental health issues. And they also say he's not getting paid in money, he's only getting paid in clothes. I mean, he'll be fine. He'll be fine. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. He's probably still getting residuals from these old episodes, right? Yeah. He'll be fine. Yeah, we probably just helped him in I a way. I don't feel to. bad for Chris Noth. I just don't. I'm sorry. He's one of the ones I don't feel bad for in any way. You can't always know the person behind the persona. And while his actions may be disturbing to us, we are not going to let your shitty behavior destroy the thing that we have built on our own. So while we've decided to move on, it doesn't mean we're going to forget that you have shown who you are. And that is for Mr. Chris Noth. Yeah. Okay, so if you're ever wondering what happened to Don Cragen after he left the show in season three, uh, and before going to the 2-7 and landing on SVU, apparently he was working for anti-corruption in the biggest office in the history of Law & Order. No shit. It looks like he was in the library, Hank. Yeah. Okay, I never saw anything that made me think twice. Well, that's good. 
That confirms everything I saw in his file. Then what am I doing here? There were a lot of scenes between him. It kind of looked like he was just taking Logan out for like a day on the town because there was a scene with him in that library looking office. There's a scene with him in the in like a diner, right? Mm-hmm. I just I have no context for who this guy is really other than the little flash up uh, text that it's his office. <laughs> Yes. So the IAB cops wonder if Billy Boy Marino, Billy Boy, Billy Boy Marino, whether he was on the take because he once worked at the troubled 15th precinct. He works sex crimes. That's not exactly a gold mine, okay? And before that, he worked narcotics at the 1-5. A lot of guys at the 1-5 drive home in Corvettes. Where everybody goes home in a Corvette. Well, I just want to note, and Hank, you may want to make a note of this as well, that the 15th Precinct is the home to the rival cop show NYPD Blue. Ooh. So Dennis Franz, you piece of shit. Was Everybody's that, going home with a Corvette, including Jimmy Smith. Was that on in 1995? Absolutely it was. Oh, wow. By the way, NYPD Blue shot on a soundstage in Los Angeles. Law and Order shot entirely on sidewalks caked with dried gum. <laughs> My my only exposure is that David Caruso was on it for one season, uh, thought he was hot shit and quit, and then proceeded to barely do anything until getting CSI Miami. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. And taking off his sunglasses every episode. (laughs) Can you do the yow? Yow! Yeah, I can't can't do that anyway. (laughs) So everyone's lost track of Father Joe until they learn that he's living in this beautiful townhouse with his family as Joseph Kralinski. Good to see you again, Mike. Can I offer you some coffee? We're okay, Father. The only people who call me that are my kids. I haven't been a priest in nearly 15 years. I'll say not for nothing. He was totally the oldest dad for school pickup, right? <laughs> he looks like he's 60. No, I mean, for sure. It's like, it's clearly a, a part of a plot point that, you know, after he left the parish pretty late in his life, right, to become a father, but... For sure, this guy is is going to be lucky if he makes it to his child's graduation. Yeah, yeah. I'll say he was way too enthusiastic about the daddy daughter dance. <laughs> oh God! Ugh, it's like it's like mind if I cut in? I think it was more about the father son picnic. Yeah, yeah, is is what I think. So when they talk about what to do with Father Joe, Logan thinks now that we got the death penalty back, I know he's got my vote for the grand opening. Hey, you want to get even with Berlinski, put him in the shower room at Ossining for five minutes. See, I think they're actually gleefully trying to say that the punishment should fit the crime, as if maybe Chris Noth should die on a Peloton. <laughs> <laughs> so we got a couple of Hey, It's That Guys. We do? Hey, it's that guy. Who is the actor playing Father Joe? My company transferred me here last year. I ran into Bill's mother on the subway. I used to counsel her when I was a priest. Anyway, she told me how well Bill was doing. Thought I'd like to hear from him. I don't know. Did not recognize him. That's Bill Raymond for Law and Order appearances. He's had roles in Michael Clayton, Golden Years, and Twelve Monkeys. And he played the crime boss, the Greek, in season two of The Wire. Really? Yeah. But Rebecca will remember him as Roy, the old man who could not stop jerking off at the senior center in HBO's Mrs. Fletcher. Oh, my God, that show. That show was just masturbation, like from opening credits to closing credits every single episode. It was incredible. The old man was masturbating. Mrs. Fletcher was was masturbating. masturbating. Her son was masturbating. It was just a giant wank off, like wank, 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 wank. If you like wanking, watch Mrs. Fletcher or if you like Catherine Hahn. These are my people. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You love the show. You love everything about it. Yeah. Uh, he was in the movie Lincoln as House Speaker Shiler Colfax, who was ousted by Matt Gates for being soft on crime. <laughs> he's not he's not the guy who violently says I, but he does get to cast a vote in the final moment there. And uh... <laughs> uh, he has played a priest many times. Actually, he was a priest in Rob the Mob. Uh, Father Fahey in A Matter of Propriety, Father Jackson in A Death in the Family, Father Francis in Cupid and Kate, A Priest in Christmas Evil, Father Cadill in Summer of Sam, Reverend Miller in Now and Then, and I guess when casting directors look at him, they just say, yeah, child molester. (laughs) I thought he comes to the auditions wearing that outfit. Yeah. Every single day. Yes. Like, I are. It's already He's custom like, fit. I stole it from the, the set of Law and Order. I have it. I'm going to save you like 18 bucks at the costume place. Just hire me. 
Is it okay if I bring my own vestments? Yeah. <laughs> I already know my collar is 13 and a half. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> uh, so you know who's playing Scully? Who? Scully. Who? All right, well, Jillian Anderson obviously is playing Scully, but in this episode, Scully, the truck driver. Marino said he'd been keeping tabs on him. Meaning what? Meaning Marino's in the business of busting perverts. Father Joe certainly qualifies. He is being played by Stuart Zully. Eight lawnmower appearances for the trifecta. He's had small roles in The Sopranos, Private Parts, and Vice. He is a working actor and director, and his character, remember his character, he's the one who got to go, he got the tickets to Shea Stadium that oh, Father Joe oh, that gave truck him. truck driver. Yeah. Yeah, but Stuart, the actor, actually spent 40 years as a vendor at Yankee Stadium. And that's why he smells like hot dog water, <laughs> which is the best kind of water. <laughs> what do you do in private parts? It's like one of my favorite movies. He wasn't a big role. He was, remember, <laughs> he like left the set and then went to sling cotton candy <laughs> in the grandstand, you know? Did he play the kid that like Howard Stern bounced the frisbee off of his face? <laughs> I think he was older than that. He was about the same. <laughs> Uh, so can anyone tell me who's playing this guy, Don Craig? Here's a list of the people we're looking at at the 1-5. If any of those names come up in connection with Marino, you let me know. And Mikey, this could get hot and heavy, so you keep that famous temper of yours in your pocket, huh? Um, is it the guy who plays Donald Cragen? Yeah, Don Cragen. Who's the actor? I don't remember. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't remember. Dan Florek. Oh, it's Dan Florek, Kevin. Yeah. Don't, you have to cut that to make me not sound stupid. Oh, no, I'm leaving that in. <laughs> I might play that on a loop. It's Dan Florek. Yeah, actually, it's Ezekiel Dan Florek. Ezekiel first, Dan Florek. His first name, um, he's known as? E. Dan Florek. What is he known as? Mr. Slate in the Flintstones. What? Or he also may be for his 403 appearances on the mothership in SVU as Cragen, one of the longest-running characters in television history, just putting it out there, Rebecca. Not as long as Scotty Baldwin on General Hospital. No, no, and I think maybe Mark Harmon is caught. I don't fucking know anymore. <laughs> Meredith Gray. I mean, it just keep adding up. Uh, this is the first time he is back on Law & Order since NBC forced Dick Wolf to replace him and Richard Brooks with female characters. But this is also the third time Dan Florek got to direct an episode of Law & Order all after Dick Wolf showed him the door for the historians here that it actually was Warren Littlefield from NBC who told Dick Wolf that if he wanted to keep Law & Order on the air, they had to have female cast members. More ladies. Gotcha. More ladies. And that's how Esipatha Merkerson and Jill Hennessy ended up coming on the show. Jill Hennessy's first scripts still had Robinette's name as her character's name. And she's like, who, was this my name? So it was very abrupt. Dick Wolf never liked it, and that's why he he found ways to bring them back. Ah. And and kill off Claire. <laughs> yeah, kill off Claire, you know. <laughs> Poor Claire. And you would have thought that it would have been really awkward for Dan Florek to um, direct Esipatha Merkerson in an episode, and she said, no, the first time that they met, he was extremely gracious. He's a, this Actually, this is the last time, this third episode, last time he has a, a directing credit. So in between his stints on The Mothership and on SVU, he played Abraham Lincoln in what is considered to be TV's most racist comedy. What? He, he played um, Abraham oh, Lincoln in... Oh, I... Yeah. <laughs> you know what it is? No, The Secret Diary of Desmond Pfeiffer. Oh, never mind. <laughs> it's the Civil War, and the ambassador from England is a black man named Desmond Pfeiffer, but it's Pfeiffer because the P is not silent, and there's all sorts of... Horrible jokes, and this was the actual marketing tagline the network used to promote it. I think it was WB. This is the network's tagline. Critics hate it. Oh. That was the deal. Okay, let's check it out. Wow. It's like our podcast. Half of the episodes <laughs> were shot, never aired. Yeah, it's just like our podcast. Wow. There's something so charming in thinking that just being counter is enough for people and then being and then watching people get sorely disappointed when they find out that it is not <laughs> critics hate it and so do i and so do i <laughs> uh we have a repeat offender R repeat offender playing police officer number one is michael cullen you wrote a report it's all there in black and white we saw him 
Yes, the embarrassingly named Chief of D's <laughs> in the Everybody Loves Raimundo's episode. Uh-huh. Who wouldn't want to be known as the Chief of D's? I mean... Not a lady. I got it. Okay, lastly, can you tell me who is playing Vince, the bartender who told the guys about being molested? Father Joe molested me when I was 11. A lot of other kids, too. Billy was pretty worked out. Said we should do something about what he did to us. Take him to court. Sue him. You didn't recognize him? That's Billy Van. Canadian children will remember him from the 1970s show The Hilarious House of Frightenstein. Did you think we were going to know that? Of course not. That's what this whole <laughs> bit is about. I mean, sometimes we it's like an obvious layoff. Sometimes it's like Judith Light. Not Billy Van from some obscure Canadian television show. Yeah, he played the Count uh, back in the days when you could get away with performing in Greenface. <laughs> we just reviewed an episode of Numbers with Ray Wise in it of Twin Peaks fame. And so th- mm-hmm. you know, that, that would be a good get for, for me. But then I'm not a Canadian child, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Billy Van played the Scarecrow in the 1982 version of The Wizard of Oz. That was a cartoon. Uh, Billy died of cancer in 2003. His photo hangs in the Canadian comedy Wall of Fame right next to legends like Al Waxman and Don Heron. And I may not be Canadian, but I think I've got half a chance to make that wall. (laughs) All right. So during the investigation, Logan goes to the payphone to call somebody. And, you know, it's got to be Profaci. Oh, Profaci. Yeah, it's Logan. You beat me. You beeped me. I'm trying to imagine the time when cops had to walk around with a pocket full of dimes in case they needed to call into work. That's hysterical to me. (laughs) How big was the NYPD's dime reimbursement budget? (laughs) I need a receipt for that dime. (laughs) Now, you know, son of a bitch. He was on the take for dimes. For dimes. (laughs) He was clean. He only had four dimes in his pocket. (laughs) You know what we never see is like the, the angry, impatient guy behind them waiting to use the payphone. It's like, you know, come on, man, I gotta I gotta call somebody. <laughs> There's not like some like civilian like listening in for like what he's saying, like, what? They found a bullet in his penis, you know? Like, oh wow. This is better than my call. <laughs> Note taking member of the press with a little uh, sign in his in his fedora. Look <laughs> hard. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, exactly. I just overheard of the payphone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean I thought by the way, I mean it's because he has a pager, which is Totally appropriate for 1995. I thought I was so cool when I had a pager. You had a pager? Yeah, before, I mean, this is the time, like, before everybody got a cell phone. But it was like... Were you a drug dealer? I was not a drug dealer. I was not a stockbroker. I was not a doctor. Did you ever get, like, those beeper messages where, like, the letters stood for numbers like they used to do? Like... Like like boob no like where it was like I love you like the uh, whatever was the I and the L and the Y you never got those no you never got those like no sexed, one page me saying sexed I... beeper beeps <laughs> sexy pages yes that yeah. was a thing before cyber sex before people had burner phones for their like side pieces they had like burner pagers and they'd have like codes and you didn't gather you didn't do that no me neither I'm just asking if you did Hank what numerical combination would give you a boner. <laughs> <laughs> Where to begin, really? <laughs> Anything with pie. Which one yep. wouldn't? <laughs> six nine, six nine. <laughs> oh wow! There. Although I will argue to this day, it should be six seven. It really should be six yeah, seven. The, the, I'm yeah. just saying, it's a seven, not a nine. In my opinion, it took me quite a while into public school to figure out what sixty nine meant, and when I heard it, I was like. Well, that's just stupid. <laughs> <laughs> because it should be a seven. Yeah. I'm just mm-hmm. saying. Saying if you open your mouth more. Hey oh, now, you could be, you could make it, and it'd be a. Hey now, this is a kids show. I have no idea. It's a family program. Yes, it's no, it's the not. hilarious house of fright and stuff. It's not. <laughs> just kidding. Fuck you, kids. Yeah, <laughs> but not, but not like the episode. Whole, no. Yeah, fuck you, Canadian. No, not kids. like Father Joe. No, 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 no. So uh, they put it together when the patrolman took the gun that Marina used to shoot himself so it wouldn't look like a suicide. We were just trying to do right by the guy's family. Just tried doing right by regulations. We found him with his service piece in his right hand. He was a suicide, no question. We ditched the gun, took his gloves off. What in hell crossed your mind to do something like that? That way his family could get more money. And even though they've committed several crimes 
in doing this. Kincaid says, I talked to McCoy. We won't be pressing charges against the officers. The department will handle it. Which means the department isn't going to handle it. Nope. They're like, oh, well, whatever. Where's our rug? Let's pick it up and go like this. (laughs) (laughs) Are we thinking that they want us to think these cops are heroes for doing this? Um, like, oh, you, oh, good job for Billy Boy. Way to lie. Way to lie, but it's a good lie. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really like golden lie. Yeah. Really, but I mean, these guys are cops. They really should know how to fake a crime scene. <laughs> Where did that gun go? Cops, Where did they put the gun? The place they put all the guns. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you got the gun locker if you in want. The, in the black guy's trunk, oh, <laughs> so boy. that they could like bust that guy. Yeah. You know, the guy's like, I need a side piece to drop just in case yeah. I shoot somebody. So I'm going to yeah. take Marino. <laughs> it just it's convenient. Yeah. Throw in the river. When you had a, a beeper for all of your illegal guns. Yeah. <laughs> it's like on the softball team. Everybody uses everybody else's bat. It's, you know, it's fine. You go home with yours. Go home with somebody <laughs> else's. So Briscoe and Logan talked to an adult victim who told the police back in the day that the touching was over the clothes. Because his parents made him say that, oh. but he said it was really on the inside. He put his hand in my pants, gray flannel pants I got for Christmas. And when it was over, he uh, made a mess on my new pants. This scene was actually extremely well written, mm-hmm. extremely well acted, and extremely gutting. Mm-hmm. And it's the one scene where I was like, how are we going to do this show in the podcast? <laughs> because I felt like I was watching Spotlight when I was watching this scene. It yeah. was so sad. Yeah. It was so sad. The, the memory was so visceral and so like grounding. And like the idea that like a grown man would be like, I just remember like having to hide my pants in the basement and like my dad, my, my parents found the pants. I mean, it's so sad, yeah. deeply sad. You're, you're, I 100% agree with you. It was really well written, re- really well acted. It felt like that was like the one scene of, all right, we're going to indulge on actually getting a little bit visceral and serious in order to cover the seriousness of this crime. And maybe because, you know, a lot of our viewers might uh, take offense at, at us suggesting that the Catholic church would ever cover up a sex crime. Yeah. yeah. You, you know, they would never do that. Which yeah. by the way, we'll talk about it in the second half. They completely like erase like yeah. the entire Catholic church covering shit up in this episode, but we'll talk about that yeah. in the next half of the episode. So this victim says that his mom took the pants and burned the pants. Uh. I'm like, what, in the fireplace? You live in a fucking tenement. (laughs) For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a modern design that lets you go further and do more. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, complemented by an interior built with integrity. The Defender capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, its durability has been tested to the extreme. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And robust cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. All right, now let's take a look at the second half of this episode. Kralinski's attorney is shocked, shocked that Jack McCoy would push the law to its limits in order to get a conviction. I told Stewart he couldn't be in the choir anymore. He wasn't good enough. He ran home and told his parents this crazy story. A lot of other people tell similar stories. Are they all being vindictive? Neighborhood gossip. That's your case. After the judge dismisses the charges, Jack and Claire seek to indict Krolinski for conspiracy, conspiring with the archdiocese for transferring between parishes whenever a problem arose. The overt act, Krolinski gave Marino 50 grand. 
But the former priest has a shocking explanation. He claims young Marino recruited boys for him to molest, and the cash was a gratuity for his services. That means there's no conspiracy. Marino was simply an accomplice, and his crimes are now beyond the statute of limitations. At trial, the victims admit Marino offered them baseball tickets if he went to see Father Joe. Logan's testimony that Marino also solicited him takes Jack by surprise. While McCoy wants Olivet to testify that Marino was too young to consent to the sex crime, Kincaid points out that Mrs. Krilinski has not been to court. They learned that years earlier, she filed a report with social services that Krilinski molested their son but quickly withdrew it. The caseworker says Detective Marino obtained that report before he took his life. Armed with new evidence, Jack gets Krolinski to take a plea. Okay, even though their arrest for molestation was a lost cause, McCoy still thinks there's something that they might find out. I've prosecuted pedophiles before, Adam. They defy rehabilitation. Even golfers retire. Oh, God. The actual fuck man? <laughs> what the fuck are you saying? <laughs> that golfers work harder than pedophiles? It's like... <laughs> <laughs> He's like, well, you know, I'm getting old. Just too many strokes to get it in the hole. <laughs> sure wish I was a pedophile. That'd be a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh, man, I really love a foursome. <laughs> Listen, I used to find kids really attractive. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've really aged out of Age that out now. Of that. No, it's just not just, that's not how pedophilia works. No, it's like golfing. Violent criminals, there are studies that show that people do age age out of certain kinds of like violent crimes that are spurred by like the amygdala and like mm -hmm. the brain stuff that and like when people get into their 30s and 40s like the lack of the recidivism like doesn't happen because people sort of age out of that pedophilia is not one of those things no it's no not one of those things apparently golf is <laughs> golf is one of those things yeah he's like hey after 18 holes i can barely walk <laughs> so McCoy and Kincaid go to the archdiocese and they ask like well what did you do about Father Joe the church had him for 20 years I'm amazed you allowed him to slip through the cracks for so long we dealt with him as best we could based on what we knew then about his sickness now we put people like Mr. Krolinski in your hands yeah after you spend two decades hiding him and moving him around like a shell game and not telling us what you did, we thought you'd just get around to arresting him. No. No! To be fair, they also they also prayed. Yeah. They prayed, yeah. Thoughts and prayers don't uh, cure pedophilia, yeah. apparently. They don't unmolest children. Thoughts and prayers aren't good for anything, apparently. Yeah. What have you been inhaling? Want to name the Catholic Church as a co-conspirator? An unindicted co-conspirator. I see. We don't charge them with conspiring to molest kids. We just say they did. It's going to be a great relief to the archbishop. Can we talk about the fact that the district attorney for the city of New York mm -hmm. called the archdiocese to warn them in advance that they were going to be arresting a child molester who used to be a priest in conjunction with a conspiracy charge against the Catholic Church because they're just that cozy. If we want to get them, this is the only way. All right, I'll talk to the Archbishop. I'll let him know what's coming. But we're not going to actually indict you. We're just going to say it. And they're good with it. And the Archdiocese was like, that sounds great. As long as you don't charge us, we're going to be like, cool. I'm sorry. That is so completely fucked up. They're and like, that, if, you, if you told us that 20 years ago, we would have been sending them all these different parishes. That is, but that's why this shit happens. Because it's like the cozy stuff, right? It's like oh. so gross. The fact that Schiff was like, uh, yeah. I'm going to call the Cardinal and let him know. That's why this shit happens. And yeah. it's right there on its face and it's completely unaddressed in the episode. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I couldn't and, believe it. And you're telling me that their response would not be to take their fat uh, report personnel file and go burn it on the little candles? Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> right next to the pants. <laughs> Still burning. Oh, whatever that Still thing is called. From 30 Still years burning. previously. <laughs> There's a lot of protein in that. Yeah. <laughs> Ew. Ow, why are you hitting me? That's disgusting. Hey, I'm not Father Joe. That's fair. No, it's disgusting. Um, so these are the dueling theories of the case. So McCoy says that the $50,000 Marino got was hush money in furtherance of a conspiracy. 
Uh, their defense is no. Billy Boy Marino acted as his pimp for crimes that are now outside the statute of limitations, and that cash was for services rendered. Now, the move was that Marino would approach a kid and say that if he went with Father Joe, he'd give them tickets for behind the dugout at Shea Stadium. Detective Logan, did Billy Marino suggest you have sex with Mr. Krolinski in return for baseball tickets? Behind the dugout? Who was the priest blowing to get these tickets? It's Shea Stadium, Kevin. Well, I mean, still, behind the dugout. In the 90s. (laughs) Come on. It's like the 70s for them, right? Listen, we're not talking Yankee Stadium, okay? (laughs) We're talking the Mets. We're talking Queens. It's really not that big a fucking deal. I'm just going to throw it out there. Also, the Catholic Church could probably get them to uh, coerce young boys. It's true. Yeah. Little Tim Cook, the Cardinal Tim Cook probably had a box. <laughs> they were only there when the when the when the Cardinals or the Padres came to town. And they say, <laughs> um, but what do you what do you think about like what the other season ticket holders were thinking? They look over and see a bunch of kids and they be like, oh, someone else made a date with Father Joe. Oh. You're assuming there were season Father. ticket holders to the Mets, Kevin. It's another big fucking assumption. They didn't show up. I'm <laughs> All right. When I was growing up, and I'm just not, I'm just not kidding. I grew up like in the '80s in New York. If you were like a Met on Long Island, where all the Mets fans were supposed to live, mm-hmm. if you were a Mets fan, people were like, "You're a what fan now?" <laughs> like that was. It's a thing now. It's a thing now. Okay. It was not a thing then. It was just not. Apparently, it was not <laughs> worth rolling the dice with a pedophile priest to get these tickets. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like Mr. Miyagi and wax on, wax off, boom, boom. Send the floor, whatever it was. You know, I'm so sorry to any like old school Mets fans that are listening, but you know you were alone. My cousin Nick was a Mets fan, and he was the only one. He used to have this Mets hat, and like he used to get yelled at on the street. It was all thing. Oh man, yeah. Okay, so they bring in Olivet. Olivet, a gentle Olivet, a Olivet, a. And she's just going to testify that at 13, Marino was too young to be an accomplice. No shit. No fucking shit. The fact that this is even debatable is insane to me. Every study on pedophilia bears it out. The adult is always in control. The child can never consent. Marina was 13. Sounds old enough to me to know right from wrong. Schiff explicitly says he was 13. He's old enough to know right from wrong. And it's like still vastly too young to make decisions for himself, my guy. Like, <laughs> I'm surprised, like, you know, if they're not saying an accomplice, why don't they just say he was the mastermind of the whole thing? <laughs> He's like, you know, Father, I have a deal for you. I know you would never, like, want to touch any of the boys. But look at if I can get Mike Logan to come down there. What do you say you give me some of those tickets you got? I say fuck this guy. This is the same kind of guy who was like, if this were a prep school, like rape case, it would be like, do we really want to ruin this 16 year old boy's life? He didn't know. I mean, he was just at a party, you know? What was he thinking at the time? Fuck this. He's 13 years old. Yeah. He's a child who was molested. For God's sakes. Fuck all these guys. Yeah. So this might have something to do with the time when this aired, 1995. But from the writing writing standpoint, why not say that Logan was a victim too? They keep making like all these points like, you know, he made the moves, but he didn't. I think it would be much much more interesting dramatically. Why did they go to all these lengths to just kind of prove that, no, he was he was the one altar boy who escaped. He was strong enough to say no. Well, yeah, I mean, I think today, if this happened in uh, one of the dramas, that, you know, they would be praised. Like, it's good for survivor representation. It's breaking stigmas. It's very interesting dramatically for the development of a character we have seen in the Law & Order universe. Characters, you know, talk about their victimhood. My guess, and Hank, I want you to weigh in on this, is that they thought that a 1995 audience would look down on a character who'd been molested, that he wouldn't be a hero anymore on TV. I I, abs- I think you're absolutely, at least on to part of it, right, is I wouldn't be surprised if there was actor-writer pushback on forcing that onto a character and, like, making that l- making them less of a character because of their past of mm-hmm. trauma, which is kind of ridiculous because, like, we, we got to see Stuart, the one who had the really serious scene, and that was 
extremely profound work on the part of that actor and it did nothing but bolster the character in the writing of the show, right? Yeah. And, and the bartender dude who was just like, I was molested. Yeah. And now I'm living my life, like yeah. wiping the bar and I'm, right. it's it's silly. It's just silly. I think that like they thought, Dick Wolf thought or uh, other NBC thought, you know, that you've ruined Logan, that people will look down on him. He can't be macho, that this, you know, to a 1995 audience calls into questions about his sexuality and uh, and his orientation and all that other stuff. It I would feel taint like, him. It would taint him. People way, love right? women victims. They don't mm. love men victims. That's the thing we know also from this franchise as demonstrated by a recent episode we did where even like years later, they're like arguing whether or not a man can be raped, right? Yeah. Like, like that's the whole thing is like male victims are like, you know, but but a, a woman heroine who's like a victim too. We like putting women in their place in that way. We don't like putting men in their place in that way. Hank, don't you, didn't the whole time, didn't you kind of think that maybe Logan was lying? That he was just like, he didn't want to bring himself to say it. Father Joe was in charge of the altar boys. He, uh, he had a reputation. And? Look, I, uh, I haven't even told Lenny about this. Father Joe put the moves on me once. Just felt like because they were making such a big deal about, no, he put the moves on me, but not me. Did you feel like maybe he was lying? He sort of was at the start, right? Because they're they're trying to figure out who Father Joe is, right? And then mm-hmm. at no point, and Mike 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 is just like, oh yeah, that's oh yeah, I remember that guy. No further comments, right? No further comments on why anybody that I grew up with might be in contact with him or might have either taken their own life or been murdered after shortly after contacting him. And then all this all this shit starts to come out, and then he's just like, oh yeah, that's a thing. Like, oh, cool. Thanks, Logan. <laughs> I think it would have been interesting. Logan could have been like, oh, you made a mess on my brown leather jacket and flag pin. <laughs> for those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a modern design that lets you go further and do more. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, complemented by an interior built with integrity. The Defender capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, its durability has been tested to the extreme. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And robust cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. All right, let's take a look at the real-life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Rip from the Headlines. You think you know who did it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Rip from the Headlines. The crimes of former priest James Porter serve as the inspiration for this episode. In 1960, just one year out of seminary, Father Porter was assigned to a Catholic grammar school in North Attleboro, Massachusetts. He was put in charge of the altar boys until four parents complained Porter molested their sons. Instead of calling police, church officials moved him to a new parish in Fall River. In 1964, Porter was arrested for molesting a boy before being assigned to yet another parish. He sought treatment for paedophilia at a facility run by other priests, who said Porter was cured. For the next few years, the clergyman bounced around new churches across the country. Finally, in 1973, Porter sent a letter to Pope Paul VI confessing to abusing children in five states. He asked the Pope to release him from the priesthood. Porter then moved to Minnesota, got married and had four children. 
1990, former altar boy Frank Fitzpatrick came forward to accuse the former priest of raping him. Porter would be accused of molesting more than 100 children. The scandal snowballed as victims of other priests from across the country and around the world revealed their own tales of abuse. In 1993, the former priest was sentenced to 18 to 20 years in prison. James Porter died of cancer in 2005. Okay, maybe this is, well, the first of maybe more unpopular takes that I have, but while the church has much to answer for, I think that these boys were let down by the justice system, by the mental health system, by families, by the culture that said that you should be ashamed of this. And, you know, it's taken a long time, and it's not all the way there yet. But in the past 50, I mean, 50 years ago, it was like, it was like your fault, kid, for letting the priest touch you, right? And I, a large part, though, obviously the Catholic Church, and not even, not just sheltering and protecting uh, pedophiles from the law, but also in that the entire Catholic guilt, right? It creates mm-hmm. a, creates a environment where, you can very easily persuade someone that their sin is their burden. And so if you convince someone that something that you did with bad was a sin, they're going to feel bad about it. Right. And try mm, and keep yeah. it private. Really messed up. That's right. That's right. And listen, I know that probably some Catholic people are listening right now and I don't want to. I am. Yes. This is a religion founded on part of it being that you go into a box to talk about your secrets and those secrets don't come out of that box. Right. <laughs> And you're going into that box with the person who did the thing to you that is supposed to be kept a secret. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, tell me there isn't a more ripe for uh, predatory, like, uh, hunting ground than that, right? Well, this is my other unpopular take, all right? That- wait, wait, why did you think the first one would be unpopular? I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> oh, I don't know, because I just, <laughs> my opinion is, you, know, you have a huge Catholic audience. Yeah, yes. yeah, well, you know, this white is being, guy. This is being played at the Vatican. Yeah. This one's probably, this probably might be unpopular. Look, if you are a pedophile, you know you're a pedophile, right? That's not a surprise. It is very easy to become a scoutmaster, a little league coach, a gym teacher. It takes years and years of study to become a priest. It is not the fast track to getting access to children. And I think that in some cases, more than one pedophile believed that they could, if they turn their life over to the priesthood, if they turn their life over to God, God would cure them, which is a fucking stupid thing to believe in the first place. Why is that a controversial opinion? I think that that's probably right, too. And the, and the church tells them that they can cure them. Yeah. They literally say, sure. we will treat you for this. They say in this episode and they say in real life, we're going to send you to a program that will cure you of this. Yeah. And they said that to that guy Porter, right? Yeah. But I think <laughs> that it's like way too reductive to just say you wanted to have access to children. So you became a priest because I feel like there are a lots, there are way other you know, different ways that you could get access to children. It is very complicated to become a priest but I, th- I think that, you know, for some, the pedophilia is a motivator for pursuing that avocation. For sure. And at least in the modern in modern times, we have mandatory reporter laws, mandated reporter laws for signs of child abuse that uh, at the very least in most states cover any kind of person who is given the trust uh, of caring for children, teachers, clergy now and scoutmasters and whatnot. But in in some states, luckily, like Indiana, where I live, I've always, it, everybody, if you <laughs> if you are told that there is uh, or have any evidence that there is any kind of child abuse, not just mm-hmm. child sex, sex abuse, you are legally required to report that to uh, CPS and the police. Right. Yep. Like, I like mandatory reporting. Yeah, also. so do I. I have to say one thing other, other, otherwise, Kevin, that you haven't considered. Yeah. Is that. I do think that predators are attracted to positions of power. Sure, yeah. So becoming a priest is hard, but it is also a very powerful position. Sure. So yeah. somebody who is a pedophile, it's not just a, it's not a crime about sex; it's a crime about power yeah. as well mm-hmm. and subjugation. And I think that the priesthood is a position of power and subjugation. So there is something there where perhaps some people thought I can cleanse myself of these sin quote sinful thoughts and and going. But I think a lot more of them probably thought I will be in a position of power and in a position to subjugate people. Yeah. And so that's also very attractive. Yeah. And it's also well documented that a lot of pedophile priests were themselves abused 
as altar boys by other priests. And yeah, so, you it's, know, a cycle. it's a cycle. Absolutely yeah. cycle. So how did they arrest Porter after his 20 years after leaving the priesthood? Well, um, don't be shocked, It's but that he continued to molest children. Oh. Porter molested, he didn't retire like a golfer? He didn't retire, no. Porter molested the babysitter's little sister, oh my God. which did fall within the statute of limitations. And then more victims came forward. Recent victims came forward. Civil attorneys got involved. Reporters got involved. National News got involved. I guess I'm going to say lawyers and reporters are heroes, eh, whatever. But he took a 20-year plea, as Sai said, and his first conviction was overturned on appeal. For what? Uh, The Minnesota Supreme Court agreed that the prosecutor crossed the line in his closing argument. He kept referring to the James Porter School of Sex Education. There was no such thing. He didn't tell his victims that. Yes, the James Porter School of Sex Education. Now, uh, not good, but I do hear that in Georgia, Fonnie Willis is going to refer to the Rudy Giuliani School of Law. <laughs> That's going to do it for us. We want to thank our guest, Hank Tulis. Hank, where can our listeners follow you online? Uh, you can check us out at Procedural Veneration. We are on pretty much every podcast aggregator as well as on Instagram, Procedural Veneration, or Procedural.Veneration, or at our website, Dank.Pizza. Oh. Dank.Pizza. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That was a switch. Rebecca, where can our listeners follow you? Uh, you can follow me on every platform, but if you want to actually see content from me at Twitter and Instagram is the place to go at Reb Lavoy. You can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. I've been banned from Facebook for the last uh, 28 days. You can tweet to me at Law & Order Podcast or follow us on Instagram at These Are Their Stories Pod. Our newsreader was Cy Freighter. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Content assistance from Travis Roy. Lily Flynn handles promotions. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with the U.S. Copyrights Act Fair Use Exemption for criticism and commentary. Go to lawandorderpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter for a chance to be our next Law & Order Marathon winner. These Are Their Stories was recorded in the Treehouse Yoga Studio above the Mockingbird Cafe in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi Studio and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in Crime Media. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.